Hello, and welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, we're speaking about a research paper from AGA that came out in September, Embracing the Future of Government Payments. And we have today the author, Mr. Jeff Steinhoff. And we also have Rhonda Kent from Visa. And we're going to walk through the paper, give you guys some insights into the future of government payments here, where we are, where we're going, and I think you'll find this very interesting, and of course, you should go read the paper as well, so check that out on the website. But until then, let's get the podcast going. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Okay, well, today we have a couple great guests here. We're going to talk about one of AGA's recent research series uh, reports that came out. It's called Embracing the Future of Government Payments, Federal and State Agencies Continue to Reduce Paper Checks. That's a good thing. So uh, to discuss this paper in depth, we have both Rhonda Kent and Jeff Steinhoff. So uh, why don't we uh, just start off, Rhonda, just introduce yourself to the audience, if you don't mind. Sure. Thanks, Paul, so much for having us um, here today to talk about this important report. So I am currently working at Visa. I am a um, senior account executive in the government payment solutions division. Um, I joined Visa in February after 30 years with the federal government. The last 25 years, I was with the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Bureau of the Fiscal Service. I held various um, positions there, but my last position was as the chief dispersing officer of the United States. And I think you can read in the report the Bureau's um, important role in dispersing billions of payments and trillions of dollars around the world on behalf of federal agencies. So now I am at Visa uh, supporting prepaid card and emerging payment solutions for federal, state, and local governments. Awesome. Well, and we also have Jeff, and uh, I think everybody in AGA knows Jeff, but why don't you give us a, a little intro, too? And I know you wrote this paper, so uh, just give us a little high-level intro and, and tell us about the paper there. Just okay, high level. Paul, thank you so much for having us today, and it's uh, Honor to uh, serve on this this podcast with you and and Ron. Um, I spent 40 years in the federal government, over 35 years at GAO, followed by 12 and a half years full time at KPMG, and now I'm an advisor to the firm, researcher from time to time, and was honored to have the opportunity to work on the project that was sponsored by Visa that looked at payment processes. Great. Well, thanks, Jeff. So I think we're just going to start off. Maybe Rhonda can give us a little overview, some of the major themes of the paper, and then we'll have Jeff kind of uh, take us a little deeper into it. Um, so maybe Rhonda, do you mind just kicking us off there? Sure. Um, again, thanks for this opportunity. We have enjoyed, you know, working um, with Jeff and AGA on this. You know, federal, state, and local governments pay trillions of dollars to individuals, families, businesses, nonprofits, other organizations. And these funds, as you know, support critical needs of the public, unemployment, benefits, education, support for children, the elderly, housing, you know, much more. So the funds that these recipients receive and how they receive them, which has been often talked about, which is why this research is so important, can change people's lives. So when done correctly, 
The payment recipient knows nothing other than that payment showed up either in my bank account or mailbox. They don't know the effort of collaboration among the many partners that was required to make that payment happen. They're only thinking about how do I spend this money? But if done improperly, um, which fortunately doesn't happen too often, there's no end understandably to the criticism um, and you know, inquiries, audits and so forth that can happen. And in many cases, difficult consequences for the individual or family that the payment is targeted to help. So the bar for the government to get this right is very high because if the government gets it wrong, um, there's serious consequences for the public who depend on these payments. Um, so before I um, just get into the key points, just quickly a little background. So direct deposit began in the 70s and governments were eager early adopters. I think um, many people probably believe paper checks would be long gone by the 21st century, I think along with cash, but we'll find out, you know, every, these are also with us. And again, this is why AGA's research is so important because the research focuses on the government dispersing function and how these different type of payment mechanisms, primarily direct deposit, prepaid cards, and checks, impact that function for both government or the taxpayers, that is the government, and for recipients of the payments. And many of these recipients operate outside of the financial mainstream. So um, Jeff mentioned um, that Visa sponsored this research, uh, but I did wanna just make a note that AGN Jeff retained the full editorial control over the research, the findings, methodologies, and analysis. So um, we're here as um, interested onlookers at Visa. Uh, just one other point of background, you know, in June of 13, AGA issued a similar report um, gover called Government Prepay Cards Lower Costs and Improve Access, which addressed the importance of prepaid debit cards to make certain government payments. So Jeff built on this study um, in 2021 and explored the current government disbursement practices specifically for payments to individuals, government to constituent or G2C payments at the federal and state levels. And Jeff used relevant literature. He interviewed payment officials from the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Bureau of the Fiscal Service and seven states. And those states were Florida, Georgia, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Mexico, Tennessee, and Washington. And you'll hear from Jeff, I think, some of the points made by those various interviewees. Um, but the, there's, I, I think there's four headlines and Jeff can you know, fill in the gaps here. Um, no surprises for anyone that's been in this business or in the trenches for a while. But number one, I think that is very key to this is government agencies and recipients of funds continue to derive enormous benefits from the use of digital payments, including the widespread use of government-sponsored prepaid cards that are targeted to the unbanked and underbanked and in support of certain benefit programs. The government agencies that Jeff talked to continue to look for ways to reduce reliance on paper checks um, for government disbursements, even for those agencies that are almost exclusively digital because they still have, it could mean even 1%, could mean millions of checks that they're trying to reduce. We learned that leading practices and lessons learned begin with a culture of excellence. And we'll talk a little bit, a bit about that. 
Um, we learned that the digital pay payments, it, it's a win-win situation. It benefits government agencies with cost savings. You know, government agencies could pay $2 or more a check for each check printed and mailed versus 10 to 12 cents for ACH. There's better service, payments are more secure, stronger internal controls, greater accountability and transparency. And more importantly for the constituents is an ease of use and capability to engage in e-commerce or to expand financial inclusion to those who might otherwise be excluded from the financial mainstream. And then finally, you know, there's always challenges um, with government. Um, and the challenges, there are challenges in making and expanding digital payments for individuals. But to a person, the study participants characterize those challenges as opportunities. So it's not that they're not realistic, they're realistic about resources, capabilities, but all of them express optimism for the future, pride in the accomplishments that they have achieved so far. And so I think that gives them confidence that they can overcome the challenges that are still facing them. And the most pressing challenges I think we'll talk about today are involving technology, personnel and training, but, but there are, you know, some other challenges as well. Well, thank you for that. So yeah, yeah Jeff, go ahead. I want to get, just jump into it here. Um, you know, why don't, why don't you give us a little more insight? Why don't we start off with some of those, major challenges you still see as far as just modernizing payment systems? I mean, we have a lot of digital payments are, you know, exceeding checks, obviously, these days. But what what what, what sort of some the challenges still out there for, for these systems? See, we largely take for granted that people have a bank account or a means for government to make an electronic payment. Uh, but the reality, and I think uh, Rhonda uh, touched on this, is 5% of the public are unbanked, meaning no one in the household has a checking or savings account. Now the 13% are underbanked. They have a bank account, do not really use the full spectrum of banking service. It may be it's too expensive for them to do so. And these numbers have gone down in recent years, but they are still significant numbers. They included are people who are homeless, with no fixed address, and uh, these recipients are among the neediest for whom government funds are the most important, and therefore prepaid cards become critical to them, critical to them, and to the extent we can keep enhancing the delivery of these cards and the security over these cards, which I may add are much more secure than receiving a check then we're providing greater service. Um, another issue that I think was surprising to me, at least, uh, when I was asking interviewees at the state level about intelligent automation, bots, IA, I learned that a number of the payment systems were decades old, some still running on mainframe COBOL-based systems. For example, in one state, 93% of the dollars were paid digital. That's great. The remaining 7% were paid by check, represented 42% of the payment volume. Lots of small dollar value checks. Another state that was replacing a 41-year-old 
uh, mainframe system, most of the dollars are paid digitally. But 64% of the payment volume was diverse, was dispersed through warrants, which are the same as a check. So you had a disconnect between what modern tech technology can provide and the capacity of those to actually use those tools. Now, what we learned was the people were dedicated beyond belief. They were experts in using whatever systems they had to the maximum capabilities of that system. But there was a need to invest, a need to modernize. And everyone focused on that and uh, saw that as being an important challenge to them. Also at the federal level, and this goes back to 1996 with the Debt Collection Improvement Act, it mandated digital payments at the federal level. There were some exceptions, but primarily uh, at the federal level, digital payments are made today. Um, at the state level, recipients may have a choice and they may elect to continue receiving checks, which is again, a challenge. Um, and to the extent where we can work through that challenge, and some states have been very successful in having astronomically high digital rates, but others have to work through the cultural change that will be needed to move everyone to a digital experience. Um, if you look at the change between checks in 2000, checks represented 95.3% of all payments in the United States, not just government payments, but all payments. By 2018, this had dropped to 45.7% with declines of 8.2% each year from 2015 to 2018. Those are Federal Reserve numbers. It's even lower today. So we're moving further away from having a check-based system. In 2020, 98.5% of all benefit payments through Treasury were digital. And they hope to be almost entirely digital by 2030. And they're Check payments were reduced by 58% from 2012 to 2019. So we're in a digital age today. It's going to change the way everything works. It's going to save us a lot of money. Um, Ron, I think, alluded to this. In December of 2020, Social Security issued 500,000 checks. Sounds like a lot, but that's 90% fewer then in December of 2013, around the time of the previous AGA study, at that time there were 5 million checks. And the average check today cost Treasury around $2, or EFT cost 12 cents. So you're talking about millions and millions of dollars of savings with better and safer service. If you look at the SNAP program, that Place the food stamp program. You've got reloadable prepaid cards. It transformed nutrition service. Again, that was a scandal, fraud, plague, 
program with the food stamps. I'm not saying there are not still challenges in that arena, but uh, it changed the whole direction of the program. And in one state, because they're now doing this in an automated fashion uh, through cards, they can tell what constituents have spent the money on. In the state of Massachusetts, if you elect to, to use some of your SNAP money at a farmer's market, albeit procuring more um, new food, you get a credit. And you can get up to, I think, $100 per family a month. So you have incentives to people to eat better. So it's win-win. It's win-win for the the uh, person receiving the card, using the card, it's safer, it's 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 less risky to fraud, and it provides additional benefits if the state wants to provide those. Right. So, Jeff, let me ask you this. So, you know, obviously checks were the thing. Now they're drastically reduced. Now we're talking about prepaid cards. That's all good, too. Now, how about other you know, applications to, to, to get money out there. I mean, these days I can't even get, I got to have somebody's Venmo or Zelle or PayPal to pay them, right? I mean, what's the government doing about that kind of thing? Well, I think there are a wide range of, you know, uh, the wallets and all of that kind of stuff. And um, I'll defer somewhat to Rhonda on this, but I believe in the next decade, you're going to see, you know, the, evolution of card programs, the evolution of ways to disperse funds, uh, ways to account for this. It's a rapidly, you know, moving arena. Um, you're seeing worldwide commerce, and it's just going to change uh, over time. But as the, the private sector develops new and different tools, and the government's partner with the private sector to provide those services. You're going to see a different day. You really are. I mean, when I began my professional career, I got a paycheck mailed to my home. And I had to take that paycheck. I had to go to a bank, stand in line, deposit it. It had to clear. It was a rigmarole, really. Um, today, it's just different. And I think you're going to see a different, a different uh, tomorrow. I will defer to Rhonda somewhat because she's kind of at the forefront through Visa and their other card companies as well in developing new and emerging products. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important question, Paul and Jeff, you hit it correctly. You know, Visa just recently completed a study of um, asking respondents of government disbursements about their experience. And for those respondents, we found that 75, approximately 75% of the government check recipients were un or underbanked. So when we're talking about the 5% and 13% across the United States, those numbers become larger when we're talking about government check recipients. So we have to be really thinking about that and the critical nature, like Jeff was saying, waiting for his check to come in the mail, well, that's fine. He probably had a little cash flow, maybe not early in your career, but you had a little cash flow that could carry you through until you got that check cashed. But that's not true for everybody. And think about the disasters that have been occurring 
um, you know, the fires and the, the, you know, the other kinds of disasters, if people have to evacuate and they're not there to receive their check or the postal service isn't there to deliver it, then they have to wait even longer for that money to come in their hands. The other piece to that is the cost. Um, there was a booking study um, with Financial Health Network that found for the first round of economic impact payments, they estimated that those who had to pay a check casher to cash their checks paid collectively an estimated $66 million in check cashing fees. So to Jeff's point, it, this will happen and this will change because the urgency is too great. And I think with COVID, we saw it, there was even starker um, understanding of the need to move to a digital um, platform in many areas, but especially in these types of payments. But I will say the government um, has to be concerned about many things. Um, as they modernize their systems, we can talk about some of the challenges related to modernizing systems, but let me first talk about things that the government might have to think about given the constituency they serve that perhaps you know, the FinTech doesn't have to think about when they're looking at a smaller um, audience, you know, for their services. You know, the government is serving, you know, with over 300 million, 334 million people in the United States um, and has to think about the people on the edges, the last mile. Um, they can't just say, oh, it's good enough if we get most of, most of the people. And they have to think about, um, you know, how do you balance ease of access to funds against fraud risks. You know, Jeff's report talks a lot about the unemployment fraud that we've seen and some of the concerns about fraud. And while I always kept asking this question when I was at Treasury, so electronic payments are still safer, right? And they are. Um, you just hear more about them now because they're so um, almost ubiquitous. But if I make it hard to get my payment because to protect against fraud, then I'm creating a problem for the recipient. If I make it too easy to get the payment, then it's also easier for the thieves to get the payments as well. Right. The other thing, do you want me to talk a little bit more about some of the other things that the government has to think about or move on to? Well, I was just thinking I'd love to hear Jeff weigh in on the fraud piece. That's a very hot topic these days. Just, you know, what did you find in the fraud world and what are some concerns with digital payments and fraud, you know? Okay. Um, I would say that whether a payment is digital or it's a, a check payment, uh, everyone faces the issue of identity fraud. It's a huge issue uh, at the federal, state, and local governments where there are benefit programs. Um, it was accelerated during the past year when you had all the COVID relief funds going out, when you had all the unemployment insurance, entities were inundated with claims. For example, um, during one 17 week period in 2020, 51 million Americans applied for unemployment insurance, representing more than a quarter of the US workforce, 10 times the number of UI claims for all of 2019. Compounding that, you had at the state level, seriously antiquated systems, systems that had problems for many years dealing with other spikes. There was no spike like we experienced under COVID-19. 
And so when you have antiquated COBOL-based 1970 systems added with a deluge of applicants and the criminal factor in their hook, line, and sinker, seeing this as a golden opportunity, um, people were not able to scale up, quickly implement low-cost, user-friendly platforms. They were overwhelmed in many cases. 40% of people applying for UI benefits, it took months for them to actually get their money, if at all. And there was massive fraud, massive fraud. In one state, the state auditor found that um, out of um, a large tranche of UI claims, that the state stopped approximately 12.8 billion in potentially fraudulent payments, but it also approved almost 600,000 claims, totaling $10.4 billion that might have been fraudulent. 1,700 UI claims from the same address. About 810 million in allowed claims were filed in the name of prisoners. Now, this is a systems problem, a long standing systems problem. Identity fraud is a problem. Um, the states, local governments have recognized that as being one of their, their, their major risks. But when you have fundamental systems that, that really cannot, in an intelligent manner, decipher what you're paying off, it, it just opens the door very, very wide. And fraudsters hit quickly. They're gone quickly. One of the states that we uh, had as part of our survey um, in a coast-to-coast -coast scam on July 4th, 2020, detected $501 million of fraudulent claims, UI claims, and stopped them and alerted the other states. But at the same time, you had states dis dispersing the money, and fraudsters would go to multiple states with the same identification. There was no national system. There was, uh, you know, just each organization has its own responsibility for doing its own thing. And um, it, it would seem like the government would benefit greatly from model systems, from systems that could be integrated in some manner. Um, and the age of a lot of this technology opens it up to greater fraud, waste abuse. UI being a Prime example, the system was probably somewhat broken before, but when you place the, the force of just the massive, the massive numbers of people in need who were unemployed uh, against the criminal element, which is alive and well every day and has no problem stealing from anyone, uh, it's a difficult issue. I will say that government's performed well. They got out a lot of money to people in need, uh, but the door to fraud was was much more open than one would want it to be. And what we need to do now is take some of the lessons learned and strengthen some of the fundamental systems so that, you know, we don't face the same problems in the future. Right. Yeah, and I think, Jeff, that was really what you said there, because I think sometimes it was conflated as a payment fraud issue, 
when in many cases it was an eligibility fraud issue and people were becoming fraudulently eligible to receive the payments that then went on to some of these digital payment mechanisms. And which brings to the next point of what the government has to be able to do is what happens when there is fraud against an individual and how do I make sure that I'm preventing payments to fraudsters but allowing the valid payments to get through to the people that urgently need them. And if they have to call a customer service representative, are they going to be able to get through and get their problem resolved? Yeah, again, it's a difficult balancing act. And if you look at, for example, if you look at some of the challenges that COVID provided, and uh, I'm not saying that anything will ever be perfect, that's not reality. These are difficult challenges. But uh, Treasury and IRS were responsible for really providing, you know, billions of dollars of economic payments to folks. And uh, they had to find the people. Not everyone files a tax return. The whole eligibility was driven by filing a tax return and how much someone earned, but some people aren't required to file. They don't make enough money. Uh, so you didn't have, have a complete listing of, of who. You didn't always know where someone was. You didn't necessarily have a current address. Um, you didn't necessarily have a bank account because a lot of people don't provide their bank account information to the IRS. So they had to use various systems, various means to identify who are the eligible population and how do we make these payments to, to, to folks. Um, at the same time, you know, um, ensuring that, you know, we, we clamp down on fraud, waste, abuse. This was a Herculean responsibility, identifying and locating eligible recipients in an expedited manner while making proper payments under a new program. Um, 30 million didn't have to file. Many moved. Many had new bank account debt. So the degree of complexity was very, very high. It's like in, I guess, in the gymnastics competition. You do certain moves in, in uh, gymnastics are scored higher based on the degree of difficulty. And this degree of difficulty was very, very high. And one can point to, yes, certain payments didn't go out timely or certain payments took longer or certain payments were fraudulent. But given where you are, you know, I think it'd be fair to say that they performed in a, at a very high level. Now you have to now step back and say, well, what lessons were learned? And what can we do to be better prepared later on when this happens again, or if it happens again, or something similar to this happens again? And I think that's all part of learning and working together. And, and I think that having strong partnerships uh, between both government entities at federal, state, and local levels, or the working together on common problems, identity theft would be a common problem everybody has, um, and working across with the private sector on means to deliver the services. Also, you have broader public policy issues. 
to the extent the country can work to reduce the unbanked and the underbanked. And those numbers, according to the Federal Reserve, have come down um, over time. But if more people are in some way part of the banking system, then that's another mechanism to make this a lot easier. But, you know, the studies show the overwhelming support for making digital payments and the fact that they can be made in a safe manner. And, and, and it's very important, as Rhonda said, to differentiate a payment breakdown um, from fraud that's caused by something else. So the fact that someone can get through the system that says they're eligible uh, is different than the means of making the payment to someone. If a person gets an electronic payment, I think it's easier to steal the money, of course. But getting the payment is really a byproduct of other control issues that are outside the payment type. Right. Well, so... Jeff and Rhonda, I think I have one more question for you all. I think we have time for one more, and uh, maybe I'll let Rhonda pick which one. But uh, you know, I was maybe if you want to talk a little bit about we talked a lot about a, a lot of system issues, but I think you know there's obviously process and legacy process issues. That was one, or you can talk about a little bit more about these partnerships we had talked about. You know, federal, local, private sector, nonprofit. You know, pick a topic and feel free to. To, to weigh in or weigh in on both, and we'll have Jeff do so, and we can, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, sure. Well, I, I can talk briefly about processes, but I, I do want to mention about the partnerships. Just processes, you know, agencies have to understand not everything is about systems. Obviously, the ideal would be to modernize systems and be able to address, you know, all the challenges we have, and that's very important. But more quickly, agencies can use their data to understand where their checks are and why they have checks. And sometimes it is a simple process change. Maybe they're not collecting direct deposit information from an applicant at inception. And maybe that's a simple change to their process to collect that information up front. And so, you know, we have been successful in looking at where are the checks and then trying to understand in a deeper way why the checks are being used as the default. You know, sometimes there's barriers to the use of digital payments and an agency will default to checks because that's known and easy. What we learned um, watching COVID around the world was there were many countries that, you know, because they were setting up digital payments for the first time, you know, were not as large numbers as we have here in the United States, but they were able to implement other types of solutions. So Jeff mentioned the challenges IRS had to find people who are not in the tax system. So in Guatemala, for example, um, the Guatemalan government worked with the electric company to identify people using um, having lower power consumption, which they used as a proxy for income level, right? The less electricity you use, the smaller house you had, the less money you probably had. And they then, um, because the unbanked number is so high, um, you know, over 50%, 56%, the um, government worked with Visa and other partners to use tokenized 
virtual prepaid cards. And um, the government worked with not only Visa, but ATM networks. They worked with retail organizations um, that would allow people to access their funds using an ID card and a token or code that was sent to their phone by the government. Um, the, they worked with 11 banks, um, local acquirers, and of course, the electric company. So there are very innovative things going on out there in the world. And I think the best way to try them is to try them, is try to do a pilot first and learn your lessons on a smaller scale and then apply those as you go to scale up. All these prepaid card programs that Jeff wrote about started as small pilots, whether it was in a state or at the federal government level. And they've been changing and improving over the years, you know, as lessons are learned. But I, I do think that it is important to mention, you know, one of the leading practices that Jeff found in his discussions with, um, with his interviewees. And having been both on the government side and now in the private sector, this resonated with me because very important to me on the government side, you know, we have amazing and dedicated public servants, but they cannot do this complicated disbursement task alone. Um, in my experience, I found that combination of working um, of partnerships among government who knew the constituencies, who understood what the challenges were and what the, the goals were, the private sector that had access to the tools and the solutions and the innovations, um, and nonprofits who also understood the constituencies could help with messaging and financial education that would be needed to help people understand how to use an innovative or new payment mechanism, those kinds of partnerships worked best to truly understand and support the constituencies being served and then, you know, finding success in your pilot. So I think the way um, the government's framed this leading practice was to find trustworthy and knowledgeable partners to help payment organizations with both ongoing operations and in times of crisis. It really is, you know, having everyone understand their roles and responsibilities and moving that payment data along the line to ultimately get it into the bank account or mailbox of the um, constituent. And so partners who understand large systems, prepaid cards, other payment types, the governments recognize that they can bring a wealth of knowledge and hands-on support to get this job done, you know, properly. It, it is not an easy task. I want to add that that the dedication of government uh, workers came out four score during the pandemic. People quickly moved to remote services. Uh, people saw their roles as payment officials as critical to citizens in a very difficult time. Uh, people were dedicated to doing the best job they possibly could to provide quality service. So people should be most proud of that. Uh, modernized systems will be important going forward. Antiquated systems never improve with time. Um, some checks also will always be needed. Some people always have special needs. Um, aim for a higher purpose than doling out money. And I saw that as really being the mantra for the states and the federal folks that I spoke to. 
uh, they saw that helping people and serving them as constituents is being their mo most important thing. Uh, you need to pivot and adapt quickly. You have this higher purpose, fostering a culture of service commitment and engagement, driving excellence. At the same time, you've got to be willing to change, dramatically change, and to move beyond uh, systems that were adopted 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, the whole notion of listening to constituents is one that a number of the interviewees mentioned. Uh, beneficiaries might have different perspectives on payment operations, and it's important to guard against assumptions. Uh, so it's important for the government to actually go out, which I don't think is the case that often, and find out from their constituents what do they think? What would serve their needs better? Uh, and to be constantly, constantly looking at changes in technology going forward. Again, longer range strategic planning. You might be getting the job done, but are you doing it in the most efficient and effective way, in a way that you can sustain cost? And recognizing too that, that you know, this is not something that that will necessarily uh, get in the, the inner being of an elected official. They see it more of an, an administrative res responsibility. And you have to make those that are going to invest money in government programs and operations understand that this is important. Uh, Rhonda mentioned at the beginning the large amounts of money being dispersed. And if you look at, for example, 2020, at all levels of government, $10 trillion was dispersed. The federal government alone dispersed $6.55 trillion, which was 31% of the U.S. gross domestic product. They're talking huge dollars, huge dollars. Uh, I mean, no private sector company even approaches any of these numbers. So again, we have to be able to invest smartly. We have to be able to develop partnerships and build on those partnerships the way we have during other difficult times. And we have to really recognize that we're in this as a community and that it doesn't matter what stripe one's wearing. And I'll tell you, I will never be accused of uh, of supporting, you know, privatizing this stuff. But to the extent that you can work together and to leverage the expertise, um, that's when you're going to really make, I think, solid changes. And when you're bringing in knowledge, skills, and abilities and federal systems, that can be applied to many places. I was, I was frankly, you know, surprised at the UI system, World War more standard. It's the same thing. The same thing, applying it to the same kind of programs. Rules might differ from state to state. But to the extent we can have one community working together, I think the economies of scale and the ability to deliver services will continue to, to, to grow. So with that, I want to praise all those in government for a great job that they continue to do. And 
the progress that has been made over the past 40, 50 years, but at least in the last eight years since AGA's 2013. So if I can jump in, I agree with everything you said there, Jeff. And, you know, knowing this is not an easy task, we used to say, if it was easy, it would have been done by now. And I too am optimistic like your government interviewees because governments were always early adopters. They were early adopters of direct deposit. They were early adopters of prepaid cards. It has taken some time for adoption, but it does improve over the years and it takes root. And so I'm sure we'll see government take this last mile um, using digital payments as a pathway to financial inclusion and even now some of the concerns um, of sustainability with um, climate and maybe reducing paper for that reason as well. But governments um, are doing all they can to understand the nature of the challenges, the reasons for them, solution options, and then what it takes to turn those solutions into reality. So I appreciate, Jeff, all you did for this research and important report synthesizing a lot of information into a very readable report. And thanks, Paul, for hosting us um, and doing all you're doing for the country and, and the American people as well. Oh, well, thank yes, Paul, you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for me as well. Great I, to be here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, you both, thanks to you both for being here today, and uh, I think it was a great podcast. Uh, have, have a great one. Thanks again. Okay. Talk to you later. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. AGACGFM.org. You know where to go. Check out all those other podcasts, all the great guests we've had over the years. We've got a whole bunch more coming up here soon. I know I always say that, but it's definitely true. We have a little backlog, so we're trying to get them out for you here for the holiday season. So lay back, put on the headphones, listen to some podcasts, and I hope you enjoy them. And until next time, this is your host, Paul Marshall, signing off for Accountability Talks with AGA.